this morning. Ezra has come to me as come across to me as a strong spiritual leader. So this is spiritual leadership part six to finish off the book of Ezra. Leadership can be defined as influence. And this is a very influential man of the scriptures. And I had never really been introduced to him at this depth, at this level, until this series. And I've been really impacted by his life and what he was able to accomplish. He was able to, in chapter 10, wake up the culture of Jerusalem. And he was used as a change agent in that culture. There are probably some ways that you as a spiritual leader in your household or in your spiritual life or in the church where you need to change the culture of something. It's not always an easy thing to do, is it? You might need to change the culture of your own personal life. Perhaps you're involved in an addiction that you just can't seem to break. You need to break the vice grip of some sin habit, some addiction, Maybe you're involved in pornography. Maybe you're involved in being angry all the time. Maybe you're involved in laziness. I mean, there are all kinds of spiritual issues that you are called to lead yourself out of. Perhaps you need to lead in a significant way in your household. Perhaps you need to lead your spouse or you need to lead your children. Well, my heart is to have Ezra, who is a significant change agent leader for him to rub off on us this morning because I think that's the point of chapter 10. He was a strong leader and a spiritual guy and we want to learn from him. And what we find with this man of God is that he was a spiritual guy, he was a leader, but in a crisis moment he was able to do something that was significant. He was able to turn things up by a few degrees to really make an impact and change a culture. And really for you and for me, to change a culture and really to impact someone's life or your own personal life, oftentimes it takes a turning of the knob for you to step up and turn the heat up even one degree. It reminds me of the idea of, you know, where hot boiling water turns from water to steam. It all happens in one degree. I mean, you might stare at the kettle for a long time and beg it to start to boil and whistle, but really until it heats up that one degree, nothing's going to change. Well, Ezra was able to, in times of crisis, turn the heat up by one degree, and then significant things happened. The difference between boiling water and steam can be the difference between a factory working or not. The difference between a locomotive running or not is the difference between boiling water and that one degree hotter where the steam kicks in and things get off go. That's what Ezra is showing us in this chapter. And things had gone haywire by this time in Jerusalem. They'd come back from Babylonian captivity. They'd they'd built and reconstructed the temple of God. Worship was taking place. Ezra was bringing the word, and up he turns around and looks, and people all of a sudden were sinning in the camp and had involved themselves with foreign women, involving themselves and intermarrying, disobeying the Lord's will and work, and Ezra had to take a stand against that. Follow as I read verses 1 through 3. This is where he began to respond to this sin in the camp. It says, While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehaliel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. What you have here is you have Ezra. He's he's figured out that there is sin in the camp. He's publicly taking a stand as a priest over Israel. And he's 
verse 1 says he's continually casting himself down and weeping. That's what the language is picturing here. It's an intense expression of disgust with the sin. And he's sort of entering into that emotion publicly saying we need to repent. We have gone wrong. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 7 to Israel, don't marry foreign wives. When you enter into the promised land, don't do that. Don't go after these different women and intermarry because it will corrupt your hearts. It will turn your heart away from the worshiping the true God. That was the warning. That was the command that they were breaking. And they were doing this. Now, this is an odd passage. I want to warn you up front. This is not a prescriptive passage on divorce and remarriage. This is not sort of showing you how it's done in the New Testament church. But the principle that carries from the Old Testament to the New Testament is that you have to be a separated, holy people of God. And they were not doing that. As this nation they were disobeying God and they were allowing their hearts to go away from God and turn into idolatry. Very similarly to how King Solomon married many wives and had concubines from foreign countries and foreign lands. And it took his heart away from the Lord. The call here is to take strong action and to go against this culture of sin and to take a stand and Ezra did this look at verse 5 Shechaniah is calling Ezra to something he says arise for it is your task and we are with you be strong and do it this is that sort of moment where Ezra as a spiritual leader needs to turn up the heat this is like you in your life where maybe the Lord is already prompting you about something that you know you need to do where you need to take a stand in your home against some sin that's in your household. Some area that you need to turn the knob up one degree to make boiling water steam. Right? To fire the kettle and say, look, enough. It's time to take a stand. And Shechaniah, this sort of no-name guy, he's only mentioned one time, since, one time in scripture really, here in this account. He says, look, there's a crowd of people who get it. We see that there's sin in the camp. There's intermarrying that's all wrong. It's disobeying the scripture. And we're with you, Ezra. Now rise up and take a stand. And we're with you. We're going to back you up. That's what's going on. And as the scripture um, opens us up, verse 5, Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take oath. Stop there. What did Ezra do? He didn't just sit there and weep publicly. He said, all right. I see the situation. There's sin in the camp. I'm going to take a stand. I'm going to do something about it. I'm not going to sit back and just be lazy. That's what it takes. It takes action. Not just knowing what to do, but responding and doing something about it. And there was a time and a place here in Old Testament history where the house needed to be cleansed. Now again, this is describing something that's sort of odd to us because we don't live in this kind of theonomic society where, you know, physical marriage, it meant something different in the Old Testament than even it means to us in the New Testament church. Now let me just sort of kind of, um, you know, debug this a little bit for us to get us back into this time period. The significant principle here is purity and the physical, protecting the physical and ethnic purity of the Israelites is paramount because they were a nation that was standing as a testimony nation to a world before pagan nations. So to intermarry is going completely wrong in terms of that kind of witness. Now, people did in the Old Testament marry foreign wives and do it righteously. Moses married Zipporah, right? But he did it in faith not contra to believing in God. Ruth was, you know, a Moabitess, and she, she followed Boaz and God's people, right? And so that was a holy marriage. Joseph married a foreign wife, but this was all done appropriately in the, and in the Lord. So we're not saying that Jews couldn't marry outside Gentiles. It's just that they were marrying into paganism. This is more a, a, like if you want to bring this New Testament, this is more of a picture of like a church that's going against the gospel. 
and saying we're losing the gospel. We need to be confronted and regrasp the gospel. There needs to be some spiritual cleansing that happens in the house of God. And in the New Testament, there's a way to do that. Matthew 18, there's confronting people. And when people are hard-hearted and unrepentant, if you had false teachers in the flock, what would you do? Ultimately, after working with them and calling them on the carpet, trying to woo them to Christ and bringing corporate accountability, ultimately you would call for someone to be separated from the flock because they're doing damage to the church. That's the principle here that we find ourselves dealing with in Ezra chapter 10. There needed to be a strong level of obedience here, a strong stand taken for separation. And to be a change agent for God... To be this kind of spiritual leader, you got to do something hard. That's what it takes sometimes. Doing something hard. You say, well, what does that look like for me? Well, I can't tell you that exactly and explicitly, but I bet the Lord will prompt you during this hour to think through, what is it, Lord, that I need to do? What kind of stand do I need to take? How do I need to feel a little bit more uncomfortable for your glory? What is it that I need to do that is a demand of Christ in my life? Jesus said in Matthew 5, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. There are certain things we're supposed to cut off in our lives for the sake of our children, for the sake of the gospel witness in our household, for the sake of the church. There are certain things that we have to separate ourselves from that influence us in the wrong way. And that's what this text is talking about. First of all, let's be influenced by what Ezra did. To do something hard, number one, it makes, doing something hard looks like this, it makes cross-grain commitments. It's where you're going against the flow, where you're going to go where it's awkward. Verses 3 through 5, we've kind of looked at this so far. Shechaniah is saying, let us make a covenant. What is the covenant? It's saying, look, we are cutting a covenant. We're making a blood agreement here that we're going to put away the wives. Now, that's awkward because people are already married. It could be a situation like Malachi talked about, where in Malachi, the Israelites had already married Jewish women, but then they were marrying foreign wives as well, and they needed to be put away. This is that kind of idea, probably. We need to separate some families for the sake of the kingdom at this point. It's a hard thing to do. And so verse 4, Ezra rises up and steps up at this point. Verse 5, Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take oath that they would do as had been said. So they took an oath. It's cross-grain. Again, this is an odd passage and I'm just going to keep saying it. It's one of the sort of awkward passages in the Bible because the Bible nowhere explicitly commands for a person to divorce because they married someone um, from a you know, non-Jewish ethnicity. It says don't do it in the first place. That's Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 21 and 24 give exception passages where you can give a certificate of divorce to someone because of immorality or because of a, a unique circumstance. But the Bible in general teaches that once you are married, you are to stay married. That's the general teaching of Scripture. Genesis 2.24, God brings Adam and Eve together to be one flesh, to be united at that level. And then you have the teachings of Christ, Matthew 5, Matthew 19. talks about what God has brought together. Let no man separate. So the general thrust of Scripture is to stay in your marriage, but this is an exception to the rule. There is a sense in this moment that this is the lesser of two evils. You want to protect marriage, but in this case, things have gone so wrong, and it's such a corporate um, spread of sin that there needed to be some immediate action. It reminds me of when the family in Joshua 7, remember the family that stole, you have the Achan at the battle of Ai and he stole from the Canaanites. And what did they do? They took Achan, they took the family and they took all their livestock and they put them in a pit and they heaped up a bunch of stones over top of them and killed them for their sin. That's a very odd circumstance. It's a shocking situation. 
but that's unique to that particular time period and that particular sin. God is protecting the purity of Israel at this point. So he's calling for radical separation. Second, not only are you going cross-grain in your, com your commitments, as we're taking a strong commitment here, saying we're going against the flow of what would be normal. Secondly, it feels genuine contrition. To do something hard means you are willing to feel genuine contrition. What does Ezra do? Look at verse 6. Then Ezra withdrew and before the house of God, from before the house of God, and went to the chamber of Jehananan and the son of Eleshiab, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. It's kind of weird. It's like you have Ezra who's stepping up. He's weeping publicly. He's wanting to draw the people into massive repentance. So he, he, he rises up and then he departs. So he's before the house of God. He's on public display as a leader. And what does he do as a leader? He does something odd. He leaves. He goes to a room and prays about what's going on. Sometimes the best thing you can do as a leader of your family, your household, your situation is to go away and pray, right? That's what Jesus did. When times got hard, Jesus would go seek the Father all night in prayer. This person, Ezra, prayed and fasted. That was how he was cranking things up by one degree. That's how he was in a change agent for culture. He prayed about the situation. For me, when times get really hard, it sort of becomes this opportunity of desperation where you go, Lord, I don't have any answers anymore. I don't know how this is going to change, and I just have to sort of open myself up in prayer. Have you ever been there? The times where you just sort of throw yourself on the ground and say, God, help me. Help me through this situation. That's what he's doing. And Ezra wasn't sinning. That's the interesting factor. The reason he was taking the pressure onto himself and feeling the sin is because he was an authentic leader, like Jesus Christ, right? God... In flesh, think of, think of it. He's at the Garden of Gethsemane, getting ready to go to the cross. He's not sinned, but he's taking the stress and the pressure of the sins of the world onto himself. That, my friends, is spiritual leadership. And that's what affects other people's hearts. If you want to see someone change for God, you enter into their sin. Not doing the sins, but feeling the pressure of the moment and praying about it on their behalf. Ezra is a, an intercessor. That's what he's doing for the people. And he's leading by example, weeping publicly and privately for this sin. And it stirred the people's hearts. Well, not only did he enter into this authentic, genuine contrition, but to do something hard, it means that you set severe conditions. He's very strong. Look at verse 7. It says, and a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem and that if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month and the and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. So this was a dark time. The rain clouds were forming kind of as a symbol of the judgment of God. The month of the year, according to this, would be December, January time period. So it's cold. It's about 40 degrees. And it's wet. And it's a rain season. The elevation in Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet. And so it's cold and wet and cloudy and it's judgment time it's judgment day and what Ezra commands through these elders and officials is for the people to come and gather up for judgment day and they've got just three days to get there it's like look three days you need to come here and we're going to deal with this mess that wasn't 
an undoable um, thing to follow. I mean, they were in a 30-mile radius of Jerusalem. That would be the, the furthest distance, you know, for them to have to travel. And so they could, they could cover that ground and get there in three days. But Ezra is taking a stand and he's drawing some clear lines of leadership to say you need to follow this and come here in three days because I mean business that's what he's doing that's what he's doing you say is that harsh well uh, he, he takes it further he says look if you don't come you're going to forfeit all your property and we're going to put you outside of the community that's the seriousness of this command it reminds me of sort of the New Testament where you would confront someone on this level. If someone was unrepentant, endangering themselves spiritually, endangering other people in the flock by their sin habits that have become public and need to be addressed publicly, or endangering people by creating false, teach, false teaching in the church, or endangering people in the flock by undermining um, the trust of the leadership in a church. These are desperate times that even happen in our New Testament churches today, where at times you have to say, listen, if you don't repent, we're going to call you to leave our flock and no longer experience the joy and benefits that are found in the church. That's church discipline. That's the teaching of Matthew 18. That's the teaching of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's the teaching that you find in the pastoral epistles where it says to tell the whole church people's sins. And these are sins that are unrepentant. And, you know, there's no specific time period that it takes to get through a process like this. But this is talking in terms of the purity of the flock. And Ezra says, look, you've got three days to get here. And by order, if you look back at Ezra chapter 7, by order of Artaxerxes I, I have the right and empowerment to have you lose all of your property and everything that, you know, supports your family to get you to do this. And that's what Ezra calls these people to do. He's calling them to repent. Now, how does this play out in our lives as family men or family? or women in our household where we are as moms and dads trying to shepherd our flock. I was thinking this week of how one of my twins, um, Carson, um, you know, I'm getting him in all kinds of trouble these days, but you know, he's just taking me to the edge. He, uh, you know, it was time for bed, 7.30, it's broad daylight, right? Time for bed, and so he's up in the treehouse hiding from me. I don't know where he is. We've got kids all over the place. And so as your pastor, I'm running around the house as a chicken with my head cut off, screaming for my five-year-old. Because it was about, you know, he's gone for about the fifth minute, the seventh minute. I'm done, you know. I've got him, like, carted off in a white van by intruders, you know. I mean, he's, he's nowhere. Well, a guy like that needs some strict, clear commands as far as what he did wrong, explaining it to him, and then giving him the appropriate discipline so that he knows that he's loved and that he's led. And the Bible says if you don't follow through on discipline like that, your child will feel unloved. So it's important to do that. And the principles carry out in the adult realm as well. It's important for us to lovingly call people out and give people clear tracks to run on in terms of what repentance looks like. The Bible says we're to confess our sins one to another, that the church should be open to this kind of community work. It's objective. You know, if you haven't been exercising discipline in your home, especially with your children, it's time for the winds of change to be atmospherically different in your home, right? That's what brings about purity and holiness. It sets severe or objective conditions well number four i mean you, you make cross-grain commitments you feel genuine contrition on behalf of the people on behalf of your own sin you set severe conditions verses seven through nine and then you make real confessions it's modeled by Ezra, but it's carried out by the people. They begin to do something very hard, and they begin to make real confessions. Look at verse 7. And a proclamation was made. I'm sorry. I'm not, I want to make sure I'm in the right place. Verse 10. Here we go. And Ezra, the priest, stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. 
Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Let's stop there. Real confession is made at this point. And, and the issue isn't first and foremost marriage. The issue is, look, Israel, you have broken faith. The reason that you were put in Babylonian captivity in the first place is because you were worshiping Canaanite pagan religion. And that needs to be cleaned up. And you've gone back to it by marrying foreign wives. So you've increased your guilt, the scripture says. You're making it worse in terms of hardening your heart. And so as a priest, I mean, Ezra was a scribe, but he was also a priest, an intercessor. He's saying, make uh, confession, separate yourselves. Verse 12, then all the assembly answered, look at this, with a loud voice, it is so, we must do as you have said. That's confession. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That word confession, I've said it many times before, is saying what God already knows to be true. It's a willingness to confess your sins. You ever been confronted and known that you were wrong? And you're sort of sitting there boiling and steaming over it and you don't know what to do. And then finally, you know, everything breaks free because you're willing to say, okay, I get it. I've blown it. I'm owning it. So one of the keys to marriage is being able to own what you've done wrong. And to say it with a loud voice. To genuinely own it. Not the old, you know, Fonzie episode where he goes, you know, he's afraid to say he's wrong. And he goes, you know, I'm... I was, you know, it's, it's a loud voice. I'm wrong. I get it. I've done wrong. I'm confessing it. That's what they did here. When people accuse the process and they say, well, you're confronting me with a bad heart. You know, you've got sin in your own life. Why are you picking on me? You know, you're, you're not going about this the right way. When you accuse the process or you accuse the person who's trying to lovingly confront you, then you're not genuinely seeing the sin in your own life. That's why Jesus says, look, remove the log, the trunk out of your own eye before you try to remove the speck in another person's eye. It's important to own the sin publicly. As publicly as the sin is public, you're supposed to confess it. To the degree that your sin has damaged other people, you should be open to other people about that. That's the loudness factor of the repentance that's displayed here. They were getting it right. Now, let's, let's move to the next point. This is kind of an interesting one. You've got cross-grain commitments going on, genuine contrition, severe conditions that are embraced, and then real confessions. And then it receives, doing something hard is where you are receiving necessary compassion. It's kind of an interesting twist um, to think through. Let me set it up this way. When you know you've sinned and you're owning it and you're open about it and you realize you've offended holy God and you've done people wrong, do you really want someone to give you grace in that moment? Well, you do in one sense, but oftentimes there's a temptation to try to do penance and you go, okay, I know I've done wrong. Uh, don't help me. I'll just help myself out. I don't need any help. I'm good. I, I, I don't want to talk about it with anybody. I just want to close up. I've sinned and I want to just feel badly about it for a long time as part of my penance, penance to do penance and, and to sort of relieve my guilt. You ever go through that? Well, that's what these people were not doing. They're a great example of realizing they sinned, being wide open about it, being loud about it, and then saying, look, can, can we have some help through this process? I need some help. When someone is soft-hearted after being confronted, soft enough to go, look, it's been really hard. I'm owning that I've done wrong. Now can you give me some help? Don't you want to give them help? That's exactly what's going on in the text here. Look at verses 13 and 14. It says, but the people are many. And it is time, it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come to 
come at appointed times, and with them the elders and the judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Now remember the scene. Let me just recapture it for you. It's an elevation of 2,500 feet in Jerusalem. It's, it's December, January. It's raining. It's cold. And there's probably about you know, one to 3,000 people who are involved in this sin out of 50,000 people who've come in, you know, three days journey, and they're saying, listen, this is a mess. And if, if this isn't handled delicately, we're going to freeze to death out here. So can you give us some help? We're owning the sin, but we need some grace in the process. Ezra could have said, look, in one fell swoop, I'm just going to say, disband these marriages. You know, one day's work. Just all of you put your wives away and send them home with their kids. It's over. But instead, what's on the table is, look, can we just organize this process over a three-month period and delegate down the authority to qualified officials to adjudicate each of these marital cases delicately, averaging about one and a half per day over a 75-day period, 110 different scenarios, 111 different scenarios are here before us. We see that um, in the genealogy list on the, you know, at the end of the chapter, about 111 of these cases. Let's spread this out over time. You know what you can infer from this? You can infer from this that each of these cases were handled with delicate care and that the wives were sent back to their own homes with their children to their own families back in their foreign lands. It wasn't done sort of dictatorially in a heartless way. It was done pastorally with care, and the separation process was done well. That's what we find here. Look at verse 16. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name on the first day of the 10th month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. So it's a three-month process. They got very organized, kind of like the Moses and Jethro scenario. Remember Moses, the leader of the, the children of Israel, of those people coming out of exile under Pharaoh and, and, and Moses was taking all the leadership on himself and he was burning out and Jethro's father-in-law said, hey, you've got to delegate the authority down to elders and leaders who can adjudicate these matters. And that's exactly what Ezra does. And it gives, I think, a pastoral um, tone here in this process. Very important to do that. It's a good leadership principle as well. You don't want to bear all the load of your responsibility. You've got to be humble enough to respond to the moment and give people leadership and opportunity to serve. And that is what I live and die by. I love to delegate and I love to see people equipped to serve in the body of Christ and to fill, fulfill the work of the ministry corporately. It was a corporate problem and it was resolved corporately everybody involved everybody together a teamwork effect to make this thing go well it's a tough time but there was grace involved and then lastly look at this in uh, point seven or point six rather point six it faces confusing competition so there's cross-grain commitments, it's genuine contrition, severe conditions are set, real confessions are made, necessary compassion was given, and then number six, it faces confusing competition. Anytime you're taking a stand for God and trying to be a change agent, guess what? Enemies are going to come up. There's always the world, the flesh, and the devil. When Jesus stood up and said, I am the light of the world, he who follows me shall no longer walk in darkness, but have the light of life. When he did that in John chapter 8, you had Pharisees who picked up stones to kill him for it. Anytime you take a stand for God, people are going to step up. They're going to accuse the process. They're going to come against you. Why? Because they're trying to hide and hold on to their sin. That's the battle. They're trying to just tight fist their sin. And so they'll try to undercut your credibility as you take a stand for God. And the person who did this, verse 15, look back up there. 
It says, only Jonathan, the son of Ashael and Jehaziah, and son of Tik, the son of Tikvah, opposed this. And look at this name. And Meshulam and Shabetai and the Levites supported them. I want to look at this word Meshulam, that guy. Because he's actually listed in, on verse 29 in the genealogy. He's one of the offenders. He's someone who married a foreign wife, because it lists him here, of the sons of Bani were Meshulam. He's one of them. And he's accusing the process to hold on to his situation. Someone who was unrepentant. When you want to turn up the heat... And turn up a situation from boiling water to steam. you got to be willing to face some opposition. you got to be strong through that kind of test. And that's exactly what Ezra did at this point. And lastly, it embraces severe consequences. The severe consequences, verse 11, is putting away the foreign wife. Look at verse 44. It says, all these had married foreign women. Who were these? Well, they're the, they're the ones represented in this genealogy list. All these. It was a pretty small portion of people. I mean, there's like 111 people listed here. But they're representing probably about 1,000 to 3,000 people out of 50,000 people. And so it's a small portion of people. But, you know, as verse 13 says, it was many people. It needed to be done with, dealt with, and nipped in the bud so it didn't pervade through the entire camp. Listed in this genealogy of 17 priests, 6 Levites, 1 singer, 3, great, three gatekeeper, three gatekeepers, 84 laity, all accounting for 111 people. But again, they represent probably a wider problem that was dealt with. And it was dealt with with care. They were embracing the consequences. Verse 44, these had foreign women and some of the women had even born children. A very tough situation, but they were willing to follow through with it. It reminds me of when Abraham, who had married Sarah, sinned and sort of he enjoined himself with Hagar. And Ishmael was born, and then he sent them away because it was sin. It was sin. And there needed to be purity in the line of God. That's what's happening here. Now, since I've touched on you know, marriage and divorce, let me just give you a little bit of a New Testament perspective of marriage and divorce from the New Testament teaching and the teaching of all the Bible. This is entering into our take-home points. Number one. How does Ezra 10 apply to the Bible's teaching on divorce? That's our first takeaway point. Again, Genesis 2.24, it defines marriage from the beginning as something that is two people coming together in one flesh relationship. It's meant to be a bond for life. Romans chapter 7 says that, that someone can remarry and be free when their spouse dies. That's how significant the marriage bond is to be held and understood. Malachi, at the end of that book of the Bible, says God hates divorce. So it's always a sad situation when there is divorce. There's really, it's really a no-win situation. And I know that some of you in our flock have gone through divorces, and they're always hard. They're always difficult. But there are allowances made for divorce to take place. And there's always grace even when there is unbiblical divorce. It's important to always say. Matthew chapter 5 is where Jesus taught on divorce. And if you turn to Matthew, Jesus gives an exception clause where he says that there is a scenario where divorce is allowable. Jesus says in verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The point here is there are unbiblical divorces that take place at times where when it's done wrong, there is a sin consequence that is effective, that's taking effect. But there is grounds for divorce when the spouse is involved in unrepentant immorality. The word there is porneia. It's a person who won't repent of their sexual immorality. And there is, marriage is worth fighting for. 
and when someone is caught in adultery, it's not the immediate death knell on a, on a marriage, and you should fight to stay together. But there is a time and a place where someone is confronted over and over again, and they will not repent of that sin, where a person is free to divorce that person. That's the teachings of Christ. He echoes this in more detail in, on Matthew, in Matthew 19 and following, talking about the marriage covenant. But he says that there is a time and a place because of the hardness of a person's heart where divorce can happen. But it's the exception to the rule. You know, the real principle here, and I would want you to turn over to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The real principle of Ezra 10 that carries forward into the New Testament is this. The point is, don't marry unbelievers in, a, in the first place. Can I just emphasize that to you at the end of this sermon? It's so important for us to plan to marry in the Lord. That's the point. Deuteronomy 7 said, don't marry foreign wives. And what it's talking about there is don't marry people who don't believe in the true God. I just want to point this out. Don't, you know, to you children, to you young people, teenagers, as parents, we need to emphasize the importance of never dating people or involving ourselves with people who don't know Jesus. It's not worth it. The reason Ezra is taking that stand is to protect the children of the families. That's the reason that he wanted this kind of separation because you're, sep you're trying to separate a people for God out. And 1 Corinthians 7 makes this point. This is where the principle carries forward. Um, the, the, the issue in 1 Corinthians 7 is different than Ezra. It's talking about two unbelievers that get married and then one person gets saved. What Paul says is, look, if you're in that situation, stay together because you'll be a godly influence at least on your children. But then it says, if you look at verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, this is 1 Corinthians 7, 15, let it be so, in such cases the brother or sister is not enslaved, God has called you to peace. In other words, if, if your unsaved marriage partner leaves you, or there needs to be a biblical divorce, you let that person go. Because you don't know if you're gonna, your influence is going to win the day. So there is a place for someone who abandons the spouse. There's a place for divorce at that point. But look at verse, look at verse 39 of chapter 7. It says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married, to whom she wishes, look at this phrase, only in the Lord. You know what the point is? Look, if you were two unbelievers and you get saved and then your husband or your wife dies, then you're free to get married. But hey, this time as a believer, marry a believer. It's very important. Very important to marry believers and to pass that down to children and their children as a standard. It's so important not to let your teenage girl or boy date and be involved in people that might be believers. You don't want to do that. You don't want to mess around. You want this thing to be solid. You want to set it up for success. There are situations where you think your spouse was a believer and then they turn out not to be a believer. And that's heartbreaking too. That's, you're supposed to stay with that person and influence them for Christ. 1 Peter chapter 3 talks about that. It's important to marry in the Lord. Number two, and this is where we're going to sort of broaden the category here for a second. I think this is instructive to all of us. It says, outside of your, I said, outside of your marriage and family, is there a relationship that you need to separate yourself from? Now, you know that 1 Corinthians 7 is pretty clear. If you're married to an unbeliever, you're supposed to be that godly influence in their life. You're supposed to live out, you know, your witness for Christ. If you have children, you're not supposed to send them away. You're supposed to be that godly influence in their lives. If they're unbelievers, you're, you're in it for the long haul with them. I mean, that's the principle and teaching of Scripture. But I just sort of want to meddle for a second. There could be an ungodly relationship or influence in your life that you need to separate yourself from that's not a spouse or children. What do I mean by that? Well, maybe it's your fishing buddy. You go fishing. Spend time with that person, you say, yeah, but I'm not, you know, I don't love that person. I'm just 
fishing with that person. But you know what? The more time you spend with that person, the more opportunity you have to share their values and their belief system. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't have evangelistic relationships and friendships where you try to lead people to Christ and you spend time with people. But ever since I've been preaching to junior high and beyond, I've always said, this is like for 20 years, you become like the people you hang around. You do. You do. And if you're hanging around someone who worships a different God, then your heart is going to go in that direction if you allow it to do that. Everybody is a worshiper. People either worship the creatures or the creator. They worship the world philosophy or they worship the true Christ. There are only really two religions. There's false religion and then the true Christ. Period. And so if you enjoin your heart in affection and relationship where you are giving your heart to someone who does not love Jesus, that will cause your heart to stray. And there could be some real separating that you need to do in your life. You might need to create a buffer in a certain relationship. Again, I'm not saying you don't interact with unbelievers. You need to. We shouldn't completely cut ourselves off from unbelievers. We need to have loving relationships with people. But we also need to be committed to guarding our hearts and saying, you know what? I'm a worshiper of the true Christ. And one way to separate yourself from someone is to talk about Jesus to that person. Right? Then it becomes natural that there's a little bit of a separation there where you can still spend time with them, but you're willing to talk about Jesus, talk about your faith, talk about your love for the Lord. If you have Christian friends and you're connected with them, then that strengthens you to be able to interact with people who could potentially lead you astray. Now, this really plays out with children. You say, you know, do I really, should I really take that stand with my teenager or my young person and, and separate that person from a relationship that could be harmful? Yes. If you think that there's a problem or a potential that someone could lead your teenager astray, you make a separation there. I remember my parents, you know, my mom coming in off her knees um, praying and she said, you know what, I've just, I've got a sense that these friends that you're hanging out with are really a bad influence in your life. And in my heart as an unbeliever, I'm going, you don't know the half of it. I'm serious. And this isn't just for the kids. This is for all of us. We, we make decisions and choices that put our hearts at jeopardy and risk when we begin to connect with people on a heart-to-heart level that don't love Jesus. Those kinds of relationships you should be proactive in, you should share Christ with them, love them, serve them, be a part of community groups, be a part of you know, book clubs, be a part of rec leagues, be a part of sports teams, and be out there witnessing for Christ and bond with those people, but then protect yourself and separate from those people at the same time. That's all I'm saying. I mean, some of you could be having quasi or potential emotional affairs at work that is a real potential there are facebook relationships that you should not have there are there's social media there's all kinds of ways that people bond with false worshipers and you got to come out of that situation and separate yourself for the sake of christ that's where you turn the dial up and you turn the boiling water to steam in your life and you become a change agent for the kingdom of God. I didn't mean to take that amount of time on point three, but hey, point, I mean point two, but point three. What one degree more step do you need to take to be a change agent for God? Now, I'm not going to have a, you know, sort of an open discussion, microphone time, but in your heart, I want you to be open with the Lord. Open with the Lord. What is the Lord prompting you to do? And I'm praying that he does that in your life now, that you'll, that you'll have something in your mind where you have to clean something up and do something for God. It brings us right into point four. Are you living out Christ's demands of discipleship? What is it that you need to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Christ as? What, what is it that you need to cut off? What is it that you need to say, you know what, he who loves his life shall lose it. He who hates his life for my sake will find eternal life. That's what Jesus' hard demands were requiring of followers of Christ. Unless you love, your, love Jesus more than your father, mother, sister, or brother, you're not worthy to be my disciple, Jesus said. These are demands of Jesus. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. And there are times where you're supposed to 
cut something off, to deal with something aggressively. Who is Jesus? Jesus, he's the ultimate leader. We've been talking about Ezra's leadership, but let me just finish the book off by highlighting that everything Ezra was doing was Christ-like, even though Ezra didn't know Jesus by name at that point. He was still controlled by Jesus as a believer. Isn't that wild? He was still living like Jesus, even though he had never met Jesus, because the Holy Spirit is who was empowering Ezra to live this spiritual life, even in the Old Testament. Sort of blow the doors off of uh, your theology a little bit, but Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he was the leader of Ezra even back then. And he's the ultimate example. Jesus, when he came, he held to cross-grain commitments, right? He flew in the face of the sin of this world. Jesus felt genuine contrition. He wept for Jerusalem. He wept for you at Gethsemane. He weeps for you when you sin. The Holy Spirit grieves over our sin. He is our living high priest and intercessor, right? He's the ultimate leader. Number three, Jesus sets severe conditions. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life for my sake will find eternal life. Jesus said, be willing to go to the cross with me. Demands of discipleship. Number four, Jesus made real confessions. When Jesus died on the cross, he did not sin, but he took on our sin on, his, on our behalf, absorbing the wrath of God, experiencing separation from his heavenly father on the cross and said this confession, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A bold confession, taking on our sin so that we could be free. Jesus also received necessary compassion. When he was at his lowest point, where did he go? He went to his heavenly father and asked for mercy and for help. And the father gave it to him. Jesus faced confusing competition. The Jews that he came to redeem, um, they rejected him. They resisted him. They nailed him to a cross. They're the ones who cried out, crucify him. Ezra was a great leader, but Jesus is the ultimate model. And finally... Jesus embraced severe consequences. What consequences did Jesus embrace? He embraced the consequences of your sin and my sin. 2,000 years ago, Jesus took the consequences of our sin on his behalf, on his shoulders, and died on an old rugged cross, experiencing the separation from the Father, absorbing the full wrath of punishment and sin from holy God onto himself so that we could be free from sin and sin's penalty. He did that for you and he did that for me. Your God, my God, our God delivered us because he absorbed the consequences of sin. Can I get an amen? He did that. He is the ultimate spiritual leader so that we can lead in our lives. He is the ultimate change agent. He's the ultimate culture deliverer. He's the ultimate redeemer so that we can be little Christ. That's what the word Christian means. We can live as Christ in a culture as a change agent for him. Aren't you glad that he changed our world so that we can be his change agents in this world? That's the point. We want to exalt Christ. We look at Ezra's leadership, but it's a picture of Jesus Christ, our spiritual Lord and leader. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time, and we thank you for this book of the Bible. It gives us direction. It gives us wisdom. And